This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Don't look at the gas prices if you're driving. Well, you shouldn't be looking at anything if you're driving, but you don't want to stop and then look at the gas prices because they will shock you. We go in-depth into why they are going up so quickly. We could see some big progress this week between striking Hollywood writers and producers. And uh, my good friend Charles over here talked to presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who had a lot to say about vaccines, the Democratic primary system, and whether he would run as a third-party candidate next November. We start with why gas prices are shooting up. Andrew Lippow is an oil industry analyst. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks very much for having me. Well, you know, I've been in California long enough that I think I've heard all the possible explanations when gas prices go up on why they go up, especially higher here than everywhere else. If it's not the winter blend, it's the summer blend. If it's not the summer blend, it's because there are, there are refineries down for maintenance. If it's not refineries down for maintenance, there's a glut on the market. If it isn't a glut on the market, then there is a glut on the market. What's the reason this time? Well, you've identified many of the reasons that we're <laughs> seeing gasoline prices rise this time. Add to it the fact that crude oil prices over the last month are up $10 a barrel, which adds 25 cents a gallon. But it's really the refining issues that have contributed to increases in prices, whether it's the Chevron refineries up in the Bay or L.A., or PBF in LA, who's going into a major turnaround, which is going to crimp gasoline supplies. This makes it really difficult to resupply the area when you have a limited number of alternatives. Am I wrong to be cynical that we are having refining issues driving up the price of gas while the oil companies are a little miffed at the state for some new regulations? Well, it's pretty clear that California and the oil refiners are in an adversarial relationship. But setting that aside, since 2020, California has lost nearly 10% of its refining capacity, and it's going to lose another 7% of its refining capacity at the end of the year, leaving only three refiners in the Bay and five in L.A., what you don't see very much of is how to increase the supply into the state of California, given that they have a special blend of gasoline. And why don't we see that effort? Well, one reason is the state regulations do not permit the sales of gasoline containing 15 percent ethanol, whereas that's allowed in nearly every other state in the country. In addition, the environmental regulations mean that the winter grade in, of gasoline can't be sold in California until November 1st, whereas the majority of the rest of the country has now gone to the winter grade of gas. So are these prices uh, going to become the new normal, especially as uh, this might serve to push more people into buying electric vehicles and uh, we're dropping uh, the rate on which some people can get help in buying EVs. Do you think more EVs on the road is going to uh, put the uh, the gas companies against the wall, so to speak? Well, I think not only the fact that gasoline demand is declining due to electric vehicle penetration, but they're also facing a significant amount of 
new regulations from the state of California covering emissions that go into effect about three years down the road, costing hundreds of millions of dollars per facility. And then, of course, you have the California Energy Commission, who's looking at gasoline margins and profitability on gasoline, rather than considering that refiners make both gasoline and diesel at the same time. And all of these regulations give the refiners pause as to whether they should actually just continue operating in California or shut down. Oil industry analyst Andrew Lipow, thanks so much for joining us. Right now, though, the striking Hollywood writers and the group representing producers are set to meet Wednesday for another round of negotiations. Now, this comes as Drew Barrymore and now Bill Maher are backtracking, deciding not to bring their shows back after all. Meg James is a senior entertainment industry writer for the Los Angeles Times. Meg, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I guess the most perplexing to me, to be quite honest, is is Bill's uh, reversal because he seemed to have a fairly well thought out reason. You could agree or not with it, but it seemed well thought out on why he was planning to bring his show back this coming Friday on HBO. And now he's decided not to. It, it, it is kind of perplexing. You know, it's it's a fascinating reversal from what we saw a week ago. And it and Bill's statement last week came amid this this great uproar over Drew Barrymore deciding to bring her show back. On yesterday, she backtracked and said, once again, she's not going to bring her show back. And then Bill joined today saying that he wasn't either. I think really what's going on here is there's a lot of optimism that we might be seeing some light at the end of this very long tunnel. Keep in mind, the writers went out on strike in May. And the fact that the two sides are going to resume talks after three weeks of really not much progress, I think, is giving a lot of people um, some hope. You know, there's a lot of talk, as these shows had uh, previously announced, they were going to go ahead and come back without the writers, that it was weakening the writers' position when it came to any further negotiations. With this reversals and all these talk shows deciding, you know what, uh, no, we went too far, we're, we're going to hold off. Does that put the leverage back in the writers' corner? Do, do the writers have more power now as they sit down to talk again? You know, it's a really interesting question as to who has had the most leverage. And you would think that the companies, because they hold the purse strings, would be the ones with the leverage. But the writers have shown throughout this strike that they've been able to effectively mobilize social media to really draw lines of solidarity that we didn't see in the strike 15 years ago. So I think the leverage has sort of gone back and forth. I mean, until there is it actually a deal, both sides have to agree to it. So probably at this point, it might be 50-50. But I think the real interesting change from previous strikes has been the power of social media and just this uprising of people, you know, really upset about Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher bringing their shows back and then seeing those hosts, you know, backtrack within a matter of days. Do you get a sense of which of the unions, Writers Guild or SAG-AFTRA, might be closer to reaching some kind of agreement? Because they have very similar issues, but they do part on some significant things as well. 
Yes, the writers are the ones that are going to be engaging with this, the studios, the companies this coming Wednesday. And um, the companies have not reached back out to SAG since they went on strike on the 14th of July. The thinking is in Hollywood that, hey, you're going to need scripts written before the production can begin. So let's start with the writers. Now, this is a reversal from earlier in the summer when the companies were really um, desperate to get a deal with the actors. And then that went south, as we all know. So then they switched gears and decided that their best course might be with the writers. The writers also have shown a lot of leadership here, and I think SAG-AFTRA is, is, you know, willing to kind of sit back and wait to see what the writers get and then build on their agreement when the, the actors negotiate. If all goes well with these upcoming talks, can we expect an announcement this week or next week? You know, I think that's too early to say. The last time we had a really hopeful moment was on August 22nd when the company CEOs sat down with the writers and that meeting went really badly. But I think the difference in the last month has been that a lot of people are hurting. People who don't are don't belong to these unions, you know, the the below the line workers, the businesses that support the entertainment industry and going 5 months without any income has been devastating to so many people. I think that's really the motivator. Here. You mentioned that the uh, Writers Guild has taken a kind of leadership role, and that does raise an interesting question about the head of SAG-AFTRA, Fran Drescher. She, as you remember, was given lots of credit early on when they went on strike for giving a pretty fiery speech. But did she then not follow through? Because giving a fiery speech is one sign of leadership. Following through effectively is probably the other part of it. You know, that's a really interesting question. And and I think that Fran really sort of proved herself to be a leader with that speech. But she also really, you know, stuck it to the, the studio chiefs, Bob Iger at Disney, among others. And I think when you're one of the company CEOs, you really don't want to sit down with somebody who's just called you an ignoramus. So I think that, you know, she got a lot of applauds, a lot of real strong reviews for being a good union leader. But I also think that, you know, the history will be written not in a matter of days or a matter of, of tweets, but, you know, just sort of looking back to see, you know, how these unfolded and frankly, what deal the actors are able to get for their members, as well as what the writers can get from their mem- for their members. Meg James, thank you so much. Senior entertainment industry writer for the LA Times. Well, so to come, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and I sat down to have a chat about whether or not he could end up being a spoiler for Joe Biden. Right now, though, five Americans who were detained in Iran have now been freed in a a very high stakes and complex deal that was reached between the U.S. and Iran. Benjamin Radd is a UCLA professor who is an expert in Middle East politics, Iran and U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, this deal carries a lot of political risk for the president. Uh, Is there great reward here or was this a bad call? Well, this was really an easy decision in some part to make because the risks are lower than they could be. The story here is that the Republic of Korea, the South Koreans, have been buying Iranian oil uh, over the last few years. And an account was created in Korea for purposes of facilitating these transactions. So all President Biden did was essentially encourage the South Koreans to transfer these funds or make them accessible to the Iranians with 
severe restrictions, might I add. So it helps to de-escalate tensions with Iran or at worst, not escalate them further, given the tensions that currently exist and also in the run up to the U.N. General Assembly meeting. But of course, as might be expected, that has not stopped some Republicans from already uh, jumping on the uh, bandwagon that this is a sign of weakness in the Biden White House, that it's another uh, you know, effort of, of uh, you know, dealing with the enemy, that we shouldn't be making deals with countries like Iran. Uh, you know, is that likely, in your view, to gain currency? There is a different way to frame it, and that way would be the release of five Americans unlawfully, illegally detained, in addition to what the Iranians gain is humanitarian assistance, money to be used solely for humanitarian purposes. The Iranians have no ability to control how the money is spent. They have no discretion. Any use of the money is overseen by the Qataris, who acted as facilitators here, and therefore they're only authorized to purchase humanitarian goods Uh, medicinal goods, things that do not have dual military purpose. So it's going to be difficult to frame this as anything other than a small win-win for both nations. We uh, had a nuclear deal with Iran a few years ago, for better or worse. That got blown up. Does this kind of pave the road back towards making some kind of uh, inclusive deal? The National Security Council has said this is separate from any attempts and overtures to renegotiate that deal. That's an entirely separate track. But it is hard to separate um, this attempt, successful attempt at diplomacy, with future attempts to reforge that deal once again. The, um, I mean, there, there are several ways, as you pointed out, of, of looking at this. So there's a yet another way of looking at it, I suspect, uh, and that is... What is Iran actually aiming for? Since it's not getting to use the money, as you pointed out, uh, as it wishes, it's going to be highly controlled, or at least that's what we're told, that it's going to be highly controlled, other than getting rid of perhaps five people that they maybe didn't really want to keep much longer anyway. What is it that you think they're angling for? What they're getting is an attempt to show that they can be good diplomatic players, um, that they're willing to make a deal and to honor it if the United States, from their perspective, is willing to do the same. So there's that sort of gesture of goodwill and good faith, which I think they are leveraging for future negotiations on the nuclear deal. Secondly, $6 billion worth of humanitarian aid, medicinal aid, is nothing to dismiss lightly given the crisis, the humanitarian crisis that exists in Iran today. So absolutely, that money can be used, assuming it is used appropriately, to take care of their own people who are in dire need at the moment. There's still an awful lot of tension between uh, Iran and uh, Israel. Will this affect that? How How is Israel going to respond to uh, this deal that we've made? I don't see this as having any bearing on the situation between Iran and Israel. I think, if anything, if any tensions um, increase or decrease, it'll be centered around uh, Iranian-Saudi rapprochement attempts and what role the United States is playing in bringing other countries together in a coalition against the Iranians. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. That uh, Benjamin Rad, UCLA professor, also expert in Middle East politics, Ron, and U.S. foreign policy. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a long shot to win the Democratic nomination next, uh, next year over President Biden. But that is not stopping him from continuing his campaign. Yeah, he's certainly not shy to share his opinions on vaccines and whether the Democratic Party might be rigging the primaries 
Kennedy stopped by the KNX Studios Friday afternoon where I had a chance to ask him about all of these topics. Robert Kennedy Jr., thanks for being with us on In-Depth. Thank you for coming by. Uh, Have you ever seen your Wikipedia description? Yes. A lot of people look it up, you know, whether, whether it's themselves, if they have a name or other people. Here's what it says about you when you go to Wikipedia. Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., also known by his initials RFK Jr., is an American environmental lawyer, politician, and writer known for advocating anti-vaccine misinformation and public health-related conspiracy theories. Since 2005, he has promoted the scientifically discredited claim of a link between vaccines and autism and is founder and chairman of Children's Health Defense, an anti-vaccine advocacy group. And then it goes on and on. That's a very interesting description uh, in Wikipedia. And it leads to this. And I know you know this. There are people who think very highly of you, and they say he's a really bright guy. And there are people who think you're a kook. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think Wikipedia, you know, it, Wikipedia um, will not allow those. They've put a, a special fix on my Wikipedia page so that those items cannot be edited. The, the actual Wikipedia entry for me is I would say a very very flattering and very lengthy. Um, no, but this is the essay, but, but no, this, this is, is the one I just I just well, did. Yeah, it. you read one paragraph, but well, it's the lead paragraph. But yeah, but, but what? But my question is is what do you think of the fact that you have this real sort of interesting? Uh, people have an interesting perception of you. There are people who either say, yeah, you know, the guy's right. He's right about vaccines. He's right about this. Uh, he's speaking truth to power. That kind of th- stuff. And then you have other people who think, as I said, that you are kind of out there, that you're sort of far out there, and they are worried about that. Yeah, I, you know, I would say most of the descriptions of me, are, including this one, are utterly inaccurate. Um, you know, as you know, as a former uh, CNN host, you know that there's... Uh, that there is a a strong orthodoxy that you're just not allowed to say anything that's critical of the of the public health establishment or of the pharmaceutical paradigm, pharmaceutical orthodoxies, and and Wikipedia is famous. In fact, it's been repeatedly sued um, by uh, by natural health physicians, by integrative health, by vitamin companies, by many many others for um, for taking that. Basically, for promoting the pharmaceutical paradigm, I've never been anti-vaccine. I've said that thousands of times. Well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. But I met you. I mentioned this when you were walking into the studio. I met you about twenty years ago, and I did an interview with you. And the interview we did, as I recall, was about your belief that vaccines, or at least some vaccines, were responsible for autism, uh, which is a theory that mainstream scientists have discredited. So when you say that you've never been anti-vaccine, you're being somewhat disingenuous, aren't you? No, not. I mean, listen, at the time I was talking to you, I was trying to get mercury out of vaccines, which they eventually did take out. It is a devastating neurotoxin. It's a thousand times more neurotoxic than lead. It should have never been in them. I've been trying to get mercury out of fish 
for 40 years. Nobody calls me any fish. I, you know, I, what I say is I'm all for vaccines if they're safe and if they're effective. Are you vaccinated? Yeah, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I didn't take the COVID vax. But At I, all? No. <clears throat> because you think it's dangerous? I, you know, I know a lot about, I read the science and they, you know, the Pfizer study when they did release them showed that people in the placebo group, people in the vaccine group of the 22,000 people in the vaccine group had a 23% elevated risk of death compared to the people in the placebo group. So that's not a product that I would recommend to people. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't have those figures right in front of me, but I was actually uh, in. Let me answer your question. Let me answer your question. Which is, and I've never been anti-vaccine. What I've said is we need robust science. We should have the same kind of rigorous placebo-controlled studies for vaccination prior to licensure that we have for every other medicine. It's the only medicine, it's the only medical product or medical device. Yeah. That is exempt from pre-licensing placebo-controlled trials. Well, but, 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 that, but I know that that's... I got to beg to differ with you because I know that's not true, and I'll tell you why I know that's not true. Because I I was in the original Pfizer COVID vaccine trials. Uh, I was a volunteer for that, and I know that it had a placebo controlled uh, you know paradigm because on two occasions I ended up actually getting the placebo when I thought I was getting the experimental yeah. vaccine so, so so it was conducted yeah, yeah. in, in and, the and way so let, let me and you're right and let yeah. me edit what I'm saying or okay clarify it yes what I'm saying is none of the 72 vaccines that are currently recommended for our children not one of them has ever been subject to a placebo-controlled trial prior to licensure. It's true that the COVID vaccines were tested against placebos. It's the first time that that's been done. So why are you against them? Against COVID vaccines? Because I read this study. I'm not against them. Listen, if you want to take them, God bless you. But the Pfizer study, which we know the most about because they actually released it, showed that you're 23% more likely to die. Right. Over a six-month period, if you took the vaccine you didn't, that's what their own study shows, that you're 500% more likely to have a fatal cardiac arrest within six months than people in the placebo well, then, group. Then, so then I we, wouldn't take right, a then, then we better move along before I succumb to that. Uh, let's talk about your run for the presidency, okay? Because uh, that's what interests people the most, I think, right now. Uh, you are a declared candidate in the Democratic Party against uh, the sitting president, Joe Biden. Just the other day, you wrote a, a letter uh, or an email. I don't know what you do nowadays, but maybe it was both uh, to the Democratic National Committee. And you are uh, complaining about the way they are conducting uh, the primary. Tell me why you think the primary system, as far as the Democratic Party is concerned, is not a good one. Well, they've taken, you know, they've taken a, a lot of different steps that essentially rig the primary for the president. First of all, the under its own charter, the Democratic National Committee is supposed to be neutral during the primary process. They're supposed to treat all of the candidates equally. They're not supposed to choose favorites, but they've made no pretense about neutrality in this campaign. Uh, five days after President Biden announced his reelection bid, the Democratic National Committee officially endorsed him. 
there it, uh, President Biden's campaign is run out of DNC headquarters. The DNC is raising money for his campaign, and the officials in each body are indistinguishable. So uh, they've they, it, they they've made it clear that they want, and they've said this. They've been very open mm-hmm. that they do not want anybody running against President Biden, and that he is the candidate. Now, one of the things that favors they did for his campaign is to eliminate to disenfranchise the citizens of states of the states that voted against him mm-hmm. most heavily the last time. So the first two states, Iowa, and New Hampshire. If any candidate, which is me, campaigns in those states, all of the votes that are cast for that candidate in those states will go instead to President Biden. That's not democracy. That's not, you know, we don't in our country, we don't allow political parties to anoint candidates like they did in the Soviet Union and, so, and not but, give but the that public a an, choice. But you're raising a really interesting question, and, and that is, you know, former President Trump argues that the system, the election, certainly the last one in his view, was rigged. Are you making the same argument that the voting system, at least at the presidential level in this country, whether it's on the Republican side or the Democratic side or whatever, that essentially it is rigged? Because it does sound like that's what you're saying. If you're saying well, that, I'm not saying anything that's a mystery or anything. No, no. That, but but is it is it I, equivalent to what Mr. Well, Trump is saying? What I'm saying is that the DNC has rigged the Democratic primaries to make it almost impossible for anybody to win those primaries except for President Biden. And, I, you know, the way that the, that the, the superdelegates, which they now call PLEOs, yeah. public leaders and elected officials, all of those are under control of the DNC. And and so you, you have, uh, if in combination with the pleos and the disenfranchisement of the states that have voted in the past against President Biden, it's almost impossible for anybody to challenge the president. You have said in the past that you are a Democrat, you clearly come from a family of Democrats, that you are going to run as a Democrat. But then you said something interesting and different just uh, last week in North uh, Charleston, South Carolina, somebody asked you uh, whether or not you would conceivably run as an independent, in which case you would be a spoiler potentially uh, in the general elections. And here was your answer. You said, and I'm quoting you now, and if you think it's wrong, then, then tell me, but this is the quote. They're trying to make sure meaning the Democrats, that I cannot participate at all in the political process. And so I'm going to keep all my options open. You said that? Yes. Okay. So when you say that, that indicates, because it was a direct answer to a direct question about whether you would conceivably, if you don't get the Democratic Party nomination, run as an independent and thus become a potential spoiler, because you do have followers, people who would vote for you. Um, a lot of Democrats are concerned about that. Should they be? I, I don't. I mean, I think they should be concerned about having a Democratic process in the Democratic Party. We're, but you, you know, wouldn't run as an independent. Living, I, I, I want to clear. I want to get that clear. Well, I, I may. I, you know, I have to look at all my options. I don't know what I would do. But if the Democratic Party just said, tells me you cannot win, you're not welcome to participate, 
then I would look at other options. Well, the other options would be either to not run or to run as an independent well, or a Republican. You're not going to run as a Republican. No, Your I, family I would be up in arms. There, there, there are other options too. There, you know, there's there's Green parties, there's Libertarians, there is. But all, another party, okay. So, so if not independent, so, another yeah, party. I don't know what I would do. And I right now I'm trying my hardest to make to urge the Democratic Party to actually open the process and have a real election. Do you think if Donald Trump were to get reelected, that that would be a danger to American democracy? I, I I don't think it would be a lethal danger. I'm not, you know, I don't. I'm not a fan of President Trump's. Um, I'm not a fan of President Biden's either. I think, you know, the danger of reelecting President Biden is very real to the whole world. I think that I don't really believe that he is making. I know he's not making good decisions about Ukraine. We're we're now, we have a nuclear power that has a thousand times more, a thousand more nuclear weapons than we do, that has better nuclear weapons than we do. But are you, but are you, that but, has said that they are willing to use yeah, but, those nuclear weapons if, they, but Robert, if their backs but are Robert, the wall. Let me ask, but, yeah, but let me ask you something. Are you making a moral equivalent equivalency between Joe Biden and whatever disagreements, right or wrong, you have with his uh, international, or maybe even domestic policies, and Donald Trump, who uh, has, uh, you know, if you believe the uh, 90 plus counts and all the indictments now against him, uh, staged or tried to stage what many people have considered a coup uh, to stay in power. Are you making that equivalency between no, the two? I, I'm not, you're making the equivalency. No, I'm asking you. You're I'm making the equivalency. No, I'm asking I, you. I've said, I don't no, think, I'm asking you. What I've said is I don't think that either choice is a good choice for okay. our country. And I think most Americans believe, um, are, agree with me. Seventy percent of Americans don't want the contest between uh, be between President Trump and President Biden. President Biden has violated the Constitution as well. I'm litigating against him. I have a federal appellate judge decision right. that said he has been illegally, unconstitutionally censoring people who criticize his policies. But with, Robert, would it bother you if? Because it doesn't sound like it would. So I'm, I'm curious. Would it bother you? If you end up running as an independent or as a third-party candidate, whatever party you know you might end up running on, if you don't get the Democratic Party nomination, which is unlikely, I think you would concede that. Um, would it not concern you if, by you doing that, it is it would make it more likely that uh, former President Trump, who might even at that point be a convicted felon if he's found to be guilty in a court of law. Would it bother you that that might tip the election in his favor? I don't think it would. I don't think there's any chance of that. I think, but would it bother you if I he did? Take, but would it bother I, you if he I did? I take many more votes right. from President Trump than I do from President Biden. So you think? Oh. It would, so you think it would be a net asset to to Biden? I, I think that's that may be one of the reasons they're trying to push me out of the party. Okay. My, you know, if you look at every poll, shows that I have the greatest appeal of any candidates. The independent voters, and that I take a very, very high percentage of Republican voters, and that's what I, I've been trying to do is to unite Democrats and Republicans. Your so cousin doesn't want you know your, your cousin. You know the one I'm talking about. He doesn't want you to run. He's been very vocal about that. Um, and I know that you know the Kennedy. I, I actually know a number of people in in the Kennedy family, and I have over the years. Uh, does it bother you? Because normally the Kennedy family has been known. And you know this as being 
really tightly knit. Uh, and, I mean, that's almost their claim to fame, among other things. But it's a tightly knit family. Does it bother you that here you are running for the presidency of the United States and at least some members of your own family do not want you to do that? You know, when I was at um, this, this uh, July 4th, there were 105 Kennedys at the Cape. Right. So I have a lot of cousins, and a lot of them are supporting me, and I have a lot of siblings, and many of them are supporting me, and many of them are not. And, you know, our, our whatever the public view, our family differs on many issues. We were split during the Obama-Hillary race. Mm-hmm. Oh, our family is split on many races in the past. And, uh, you know, I was raised in a, in a milieu where we were encouraged to debate each other, to argue with each other, and still love each other. There are a lot of members of my family that disagree with me on the Ukraine war. Um, they disagree with me on, on, the, on the control of – on the Wall Street's control of our economy. Right. They differ with me on censorship issues. And I – you know, and they also – you know, I have a lot of – Family members, five family members who are working for the Biden administration. So my, President Biden has a bust of my father behind him at the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. There's a long, long relationship between members of my family and President Biden, including me. And so I wouldn't expect there to be unanimity in a race like this. I think it's troubling to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I'm doing what I believe is right, and I have a lot of support out there for it. There's a lot of people who want an alternative to President Biden and President Trump. Robert Kennedy Jr., thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Charles. Just a quick note, I talked to Kennedy Friday afternoon a short time before a man was taken into custody, accused of having a loaded gun and impersonating a U.S. marshal at a Kennedy campaign event at the Wilshire Ebell Theater. All right. That's going to do it for In-Depth today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow at 1 p.m.